Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. It's wonderful to be together. Tonight we are summing up the book of Colossians. We are bringing this series to a conclusion. If you have just joined us, it's been a journey we've been going on for the last six or seven weeks as we've been navigating our way through the Scriptures, a New Testament book, four chapters, but we've just been diving into it and it's really been strengthening us and encouraging us. But I want to land the series by zoning in on the last verse. It's the last verse of the whole of Colossians, Colossians 4 verse 18, and it's this brief little verse that Paul writes, it's almost like this throwaway line, but I want to bring it to our attention this evening. It says this, it says, this letter is written in my own hands, Paul. Then the next line says, remember my chains, finally says, and be, grace be with you. It's this profound little statement there, but as I, as I saw it, and it's almost like the end, it's almost like a, just a line they throw out, and then, and then what do we do with it? No, but it's not just a throwaway line. At the very end, the last little part of this letter, Paul is saying with, with such excitement and to put in at the front and center of these people, the last thing he wants them to remember, he says, remember my chains. Quite a profound statement that Paul is trying to write to them and remind them because this is a letter that's been written from prison and he's wanting them to remember that at the end of four chapters of his writing, he wants them to remember that this letter was penned in a prison cell. This is huge because for us as Christians, this side of, 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 the, of the millennia where, we, where life is a lot different from what it once was, we often read the Bible, uh, I don't know about you, I read it with a cup of coffee and sitting on my couch, very comfortable, I've got my choice of music on the background just to set the mood, and if I'm really spiritual that day, I've got a highlighter, that's just really good, it's really encouraging and feeding me. Or sometimes when I'm not that spiritual, I'm just trying to keep up with my version reading plan, uh, in between series, this is confession time, or if I'm trying to fast forward through some sports, I'll quickly, oh, I've got to read a few scriptures. And I read it so quickly like that. And, and again, I, I'm not digging at us reading the Scriptures, but I think sometimes we read it from this vantage point where we forget that this is not some text that's light and fluffy. This is a real sweat, blood, and tears book that was written to us. And this book in particular was written from a prison cell. It was written by a man whose wounds, while well, these words were being written, were festering. Festering wounds. There's a man who probably hadn't had a shower for weeks the last time his body touched water was when he had been shipwrecked on the way towards his prison in Rome. This is a man who's writing this, probably in a cold, hard floor, hungry. A man who's, who's been vilified and abused falsely. But we get this letter from him. He's written this letter to us. But as I read it, and I see him say, land this thing saying, remember my chains. If you're just joining us now and you haven't navigated the chapters before this up to this point, you'd be forgiven to think that a man who says, remember my chains. You'd think that maybe, maybe the letter was one of frustration, or one where he was uh, going on angry rants, or one where he was, was, was making a big political statement and saying, hashtag Caesar must fall. Or what was going on in this letter? Was he doing any of that? When, when actually, when we read the letter, he says, remember my chains, but actually the tone preceding that would be far from different from what I just suggested. His tone throughout the letter, if you read it, is one full of wonder and delight and victory, and joy. This is the book of Colossians to us. So much so that when I read this man, a man in prison, he says, remember my chains, but I see the overwhelming tone of joy resounding from that prison cell on, across the millennia to my heart here and now. That's a man that I want to learn from. 
I don't know about you. I want to learn from a man who's seen it and done it and lived it and still is holding his heart in joy. I want to listen to that sort of man. So much so that this evening I want to land this book, this series that we've been on, by reiterating a few main thoughts for us. But I've entitled this little sermon, and I've called it How to Have Joy in Your Prison. How to Have Joy in Your Prison. Now, I took a swig of water just to give you a chance to just to realize I did not say the word how to have happiness in the prison. Now, you see, it might be semantics to you. It might be, come on, that's just right-click, choose a synonym for joy, joy, happiness. You can, enter, enter, you can just put those two together. No, no, no. There is a stark difference between the two. Happiness is a temporary emotion that can be stolen from you in an instance. No one knows this fact more than sharks and Proteus supporters. Happiness comes and it goes very fast. I tell you, happiness is as fleeting as the petrol price at the end of every month. It's up one month, it's down the next. We never know where our emotions are going to be. It's as fleeting as ESCOM's promises to us that load shedding is done. I'm not prophesying. Just, just being, being reasonable here. But jokes aside, I want to say when life is tough, when sleep is little, and I say amen at that, my child, when pain is much, when the phone call rings and there isn't good news on the other side, I want to tell you this evening, there is soul-satisfying joy that is on offer in the book of Colossians, that Paul is putting on offer, putting on the table, that there's soul-satisfying joy for you and I in the gospel, and I pray that you and I would lay hold of it tonight, move past and push past all the, the stuff, that, the, the extra stuff that's on the surface and find the joy that God has for us, no matter what our circumstances, no matter where we find ourselves in li- our lives, no matter what the enemy is doing amongst us, that actually that the, the gospel says there is a joy that you can have in your prison. And I want to help us navigate that this evening. But before we do that, why don't we pray? And it will be brief. Father, I pray this evening as we come to your scriptures, as we come together to worship you, to lift your name up, and now to to lean into you with faith. I thank you, Father God, would you set us free from lesser pursuits and lesser pleasures? Would you stir our hearts with affection for your son, Jesus? And more than just stir them, God, would you change our hearts so that we would see you as the highest treasure and the deepest delight of our souls? Set us free from insipid living and small things, and vain things. See us free to lay our lives down for you, Jesus. Capture our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How to have joy in a prison. Two points, and two points only this evening on how we're going to do this. Paul is making claims that there's two ways for us to have joy in a prison, no matter which way you, what you're facing, what circumstances, knocking at your door. Number one is this. We have to know that Christ is supreme. Christ is is supreme. I tell a story about my varsity days, and yes, shock horror, I did go to university. I know, some of you are like, wow, it's amazing. I went to university, and I uh, went to university in Durban, and, and I was a, a freshly zealous Christian. I'd found Christ, and I was wanting to tell anybody and everybody who would listen about Jesus, and I was burning with this desire and this passion for Him. I had friends around me who had the same desires, and we thought we had a captive audience at university, so we got together and we prayed and said, Jesus, give us a strategy on how we can reach our university. So we prayed and we prayed and we came up with this wise, profound strategy. Do you want to hear what it was? Hire a yogi bear suit. That's what we did. Yeah, we, we, were, we, were, we were one step ahead of the game here. Should be taking notes. 
What we did was we put on this bear suit. We thought this was genius, a way to break through the noise, to capture the attention of the, our peers at, at university. We hired a, a Ergi bear suit, and uh, we ching-chong-chud for who would wear it in the stifling Durban heat. That was me. And uh, we paraded up and down, disturbing lecture venues, going up into people, uh, friendship groups and conversations. And what caused the greatest stir was we put a little, uh, little sign on the front of Yogi Bear saying something that would appeal to every student's heart. Free food in lecture venue 12 at midday. Now, we knew this was the way to students' hearts. And we caused a stir. People were taking selfies before selfies was even a thing. And they were so excited about free food that when we came to midday at lecture venue 12, we set up all the food on the one side and we waited. And the doors opened up and people just came. Came, came. The room got so full. There was over about 200 people in the room. And we were a little bit daunted by this fact. We're like, wow, this is quite exciting. And we did what, what, what I call a good bait and switch. It's not an ideal way to do it. I know I've repented of this. But we said, come for free food. But before you eat, you have to listen to me speak. They're like, ah. So I got on the table, and uh, we said, we're going to show you a profound little video clip very quickly, and it's a deep one. This is from a, a, a spiritual prophet. His name is Will Ferrell. Um, it's a joke, of course. But we showed a Will Ferrell movie, which was Talladega Nights. And there's a scene where they're sitting around a dinner table, and they're trying to discuss between them how they see Jesus. And it's in a, it's in a very uh, sacrosanct way. So it's, not, it's not in a really... God-honoring way at all, but they're talking and they're saying, oh, no, I like to see Jesus as a, as a Christmas baby, dear baby Jesus, and, this, and, this, and it's, it's got quite some humor to it. I'm not recommending the movie. That's just, just what we did, but we showed this. Everyone laughed, tried to one, make the, the, the connection. Then I got up and I said, how do you see Jesus? There's all these different opinions and different thought processes, but I said, tonight, today, I want to take the thought, the, the excuse away that you've never heard the truth about this man. There's so many different opinions about him, but I want to tell you, we see Jesus from the Word of God. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way. He is the, the ultimate truth. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the only way you can be saved. So we declared it. We preached it. We made an offer to, get, to people to respond to the gospel. Three things happened that, that day. The food was all eaten afterwards. Secondly, many people came to salvation. And thirdly, we had a whole backlash of offended people who were ranting and raving that how dare you make such vicious claims? How dare you stand at a university, a place of reason and thought, and parade fairy tales in front of people? How dare you come? We've got supposed to be tolerant of one another's thought. How dare you make those statements? And it caused quite a stir. But I want to tell you, when, when I had to wrestle with this response of people, because as somebody who likes to be liked, I didn't like it. But I realized there's a, a preacher once spoke about the Apostle Paul, who we're talking about, who wrote this letter from prison in Coloss the book of Colossians. They said, wherever Paul went to preach, revival or riots broke out. Either riot, revival or he was arrested and tried to be stoned to death. And the preacher went on and said, whenever I go to preach, they just serve tea. And actually, there's a lady called Dorothy Sayers. She says something quite profound about what we as a culture have almost done to this idea of who Jesus Christ is. She says, we have very efficiently cut the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious ladies. What an indictment. But I see as we read the scriptures that Paul is fighting for something deep. He's fighting to move past just superficial happiness and making things nice and, and, and tickling our ears. He's got, trying for something deeper, the joy of our souls. And in the book of Colossians, he raises up Christ as supreme. And he does so in this profound way. He says, Christ is supreme over all creation. 
Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. He says this, He existed, speaking about Jesus, before anything was created, and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things we see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him, and everything was created for Him. Now, before you just brush over that and glaze over, Paul is making some really scandalous claims with the statement. This is not something that's just easy and palatable. In a culture where there's many different gods on offer, in a culture that was right in the center of where Christianity was here, and, but there's also all the, the Roman gods to the left and all the Jewish believers on the right with all their different mystical ways and the ascetic ways on the left and right, this was quite a, a crazy claim to make. He was saying, Jesus was before all of it. He says Jesus is supreme over all creation. This is a radical proclaim that goes right into the heart of this culture. And actually what he says in a way, he, in that one statement that Jesus existed, at all, before, existed before it all, it, it drives a death knell to every other philosophy or ism on the planet earth. There's, there's whole many claims. You go to the next slide very quickly. Now, now, no. Okay, it's not there. Don't worry. The one saying dualism and polytheism and existentialism. You see, all these different ways of thought, maybe just if it's interesting for you, maybe it's just for me, but that one statement that Jesus pre-exists everything, it, it, pulls, it puts a full stop to any other claim or religious way of thinking. That dualism that says, you know, there's a battle between God and Satan and who will win. There's an angel on this one and a demon on this shoulder. Who's going to win? That one statement says Jesus existed before the devil. The devil is a created being. He's underneath Jesus. Bam, dualism off the table. We've got all these other different ways. Polytheism saying, actually, there's many gods. There's many different ways to God. There are different options. One statement. No, God, Jesus preexisted all of them. When Jesus creation, there was no other gods present. It was him and him alone. The, st the statement that says existentialism, as Descartes would say, as I think, therefore I am. You know, we often think our way. And even modern day preachers will, will even tell you this. They'll say, think yourself happy. Come on. Think yourself holy. Just get the right thoughts and you'll be fine. This statement blows out of the water saying, actually, no, no, you are a created being with a creator. You have no power that the, of yourself that the creator has not given you. This statement right there blows everything out of the water. Pantheism, the, the religion made popular by Oprah and her ilk that says there's, 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 what, everything is God and every, you know, we can worship this way and that way in different response systems. But no, no, there's a claim here. Paul is making radical claims and especially for us today where the, the thought process today is, no, just live your truth and I'll live my truth. Popular, made very popular. Your truth, what's my, I'm just living my truth. There's no, in, in our day and age, there's no ultimate truth. Paul here is saying, there is ultimate truth that supersedes your truth and my truth. And this truth is, there was one named Jesus who was before it all and above it all. This is a radical claim Today, more than ever, but just as radical in the day of the Colossian church, but it needs to find our hearts that actually Jesus is supreme. What am I trying to do practically? Is the fact we have to understand when, when we give our lives to Jesus, Jesus doesn't just come in and say, actually, I'll move into your heart and just, could, you shuffle, could the other idols just shuffle up and make space for me? No, no, that's not what he's on about. When Jesus comes, he doesn't say, I'll just take room 5B and I'll share your heart with your addiction to sex and your worshiping of relationships and your, your idolatry of your business. No, no, I'm, not, I'm just going to share your heart. No, no, Jesus is supreme and he wants all of us. 
This is who he is. And there's a scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 12 to 17, says this. Speaking of, of Jesus, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You encouraged? Maybe you're sitting there going, I thought you were preaching about joy. I don't know how I reconcile those two. Let me help you there. Let me tell you why this should put joy into your heart. When I read texts like this, they remind me that He is supreme above all creation, supreme above the nation, supreme above all things. It put joy in my heart. Why? It reminds me that I and you are not the center. How relieving. We are not the center. We don't have to sustain it all. Here's the thought. The religion of our day. Sir, ma'am. It's not extremism on this left or right. The religion of the day is something called narcissism, which means I worship myself. My truth, how I respond, I am at the center. A navel-gazing people who, who are, uh, which is exacerbated by social media, and we live for the approval of man. And I want to tell you, narcissism is exhausting. Image management is exhausting. We have to project a, that this is who I am, and I always got to project myself as stronger and better than I really am. If only my life was as cool as my Facebook status says it was. I tell you, let me, I tell you, with my, with my new baby boy, I've posted beautiful photos of him sleeping, looking angelic. And everyone's like, wow, that is, that child, anointed. I haven't posted the photos of him screaming his lungs out at one, two, three, and four in the morning most evenings. I haven't posted those because those won't really go down so well. Why? Because we all play the game. I want to show you the best version of myself, but it's exhausting. But actually, when we, get to, when we see him as supreme, we start to untie ourselves from being at the center. And the great news is that the sun rises and it sets at his command. The waves come in and the waves go out by the word of his power. I have nothing to do with it. But here, here's the thing, as we've got more advanced, and I put them in quotation marks, as a culture, as a society, we've, we've progressed, and we've got more technology, and we know what to do with it. We've progressed, and we're so advanced. With that advancement, we've become the most medicated we've ever been as a people. So the, the more we've got, the, the, the less we've been able to manage any of it. And we're falling apart at the seams. Why? Because we've uh, people that have got drunk on our self-importance in the story. Here's the great news. I'm fighting for your joy. You are not the center of the story. So freeing. Take a deep breath. Thank God. I want to tell you today the great news is Jesus is not nervous. He's not in recession. He's not wringing his hands. He's not anxious about your business. He's not worried about the economy. He's not nervous about how your relationship is going. He's not stressed out in the sights. He sits enthroned, and he is above it all, and he's in charge. This should fight for joy in our hearts. So are you exhausted? Are you burnt out? I want to tell you, here's the solution. Don't have to go... For, for a spa treatment, you don't have to go for a weekend away, you don't have to just take a break. All those things are helpful, but can I tell you what you need? You need to bow your knee to Jesus. 
Bow your knee to Jesus. Then you'll truly live and you'll find grace. But I want to tell you, Paul goes on and says, not just was, is he supreme above creation, he says he's supreme above all power. And this thing's profound. The letter was written in AD 62. This letter in prison written in AD 62 to a people who drunk on their own importance, who, who are having lovely discussions about Jesus and how he fits in with the pantheon of, of Roman gods and how we can relate to Zeus and the people here and how we can bring in some Jewish practices that will make us a little bit more holy, a little bit more righteous, going after secret wisdom and, and, and making ourselves at the center of the story. Paul writes this letter fighting for their joy, saying, it's not you, there's one more supreme. His name is Jesus. The profound thing is, AD 62, this letter is written. AD 63, just a year later, the Caesar of the day named Nero launches a state-sponsored a state, a, a state um, terrorism upon Christians that would have made ISIS's terrorism look like Teletubbies. Nero, in his wrath, wants to crush anyone who claims the, 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 the statement that Jesus is Lord. And the church that was so drunk on their own importance and trying to navigate this way, all of a sudden find themselves under the brunt and the full force of the political empire called Rome. And if you don't believe me, Nero, let me tell you what he did in, when he found people who claimed Christ as their Lord and not Caesar, the state propaganda of the day. He would burn them alive. Stories of him having them sewn into skins of wild animals and then given to dogs to tear apart. Others were crucified. Martyrs were exhibited in the circus with Nero presiding, dressed as a charioteer. He hosted garden parties. We would have, his, have Christians covered in tar and then set alight for entertainment and lighting purposes. This is what happened to our brothers and sisters. And I can imagine for years, as they felt the oppression of Rome, they probably cried out, How long, O oh God, how long? But let me tell you the good news. Rome and Nero rose Rome and Nero fell. Alexander the Great rose, he fell. The Russian empires rose and they fell. Again and again, people grew Nazi Germany rose, but it fell. But let me tell you, a little man from a town called Nazareth named Jesus, his fame has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And, grown. and that, the great news, the good news for you and I is not only just Jesus' name is being exalted. He's also told us that actually anyone who's aligned with them, their stories will never be, would be put out because the church will advance and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His story exists, keeps plowing on into eternity. The churches does. Political enemy, uh, empires have fallen. So much so, if you go to Europe now, you can go and walk in the, the, the Colosseum ruins and do it and have a narrated tour for just 20 pounds. Nero, I'll crush them. Nero, just a footnote in history that we have to Wikipedia to find some details when the name of Jesus is worshipped and adored across the globe. Should put courage in our heart. And why I say this is what has this got to do with our joy again? I'll tell you this our president, our economy, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your friends, they do not hold your joy. They do not. The problem is what happens when we put our kids at the center and they, they are the ones who are going to determine our joy, going to determine our happiness. The problem with that is when your kids do well, oh, you are thriving so good. But when they fail you, when they let you down, when they don't respond the way you think, you come crashing down with such brokenness and despair. When your spouse lets you go, lets you down, then, you, then, you're, then you're finished because you're all over. Because actually our breakthrough and our, our freedom is not actually, God, would you change our government? God, would you change the country? No, God, change my heart so I see you supreme. This is how you have joy in a prison. 
great news is Paul kept going. He said that Christ is supreme. But secondly and finally this evening, he says Christ is also sufficient. Paul goes cosmic and declares Christ above all powers and principalities, all rulers and dominions, all of creation. Christ is above it all, before it all, over it all, and will end it all. And then he majestically zones in on you and I. And he says, let me tell you what Christ is for you. He's also sufficient. He's enough for you. Colossians 1 verse 20, the second part of it says, Jesus made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. One uh, theologian once said that actually, if you cut the Bible, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. What does he mean by that? Actually, there's an error the way we even read the Bible. We read the Bible sometimes, we read it with ourselves at the center. I'm, I'm the first one to admit this, my guilt to this. What do I mean by that? We've been sold stories that make it palatable and easy to remember. We say, the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. It's nice and cute. The problem is with that, we think that we start being sold ideas that this is, this is the, the roadmap to your life. When actually, the great news of this story is not that I'm at the center. It's that Jesus is the center of the story. This is a roadmap to Him. To him, so much so, we've done the error. We read the story of David and Goliath, and we'll go, I'm David, I'm the hero in the story, Goliath is my problems, and if I just get the right stones, if I do the right thing, then I can overcome the enemy. Can I tell you, the true reading of that scripture, Jesus is David. The enemy is Goliath. You don't know who you and I are? The brothers who are scared for our lives, hiding in the hills, watching David from a distance, going, go David! We back you! And when David wins the victory, we run and going, we won! That's who we are in the story. Because this book is about Jesus, not about us. Such the, it's a scarlet thread that if you cut it, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. On every page, this book from page one to the very, very end is telling you that his blood is enough for you. You don't believe me. Let me prove it. There's a story in Genesis chapter 22. It's an incredible story, majestic story of a man named Abraham who's had this promise from God, you're going to have a child. For many years, he waits and waits and waits, and nothing happens. But eventually, as he's as good as dead, he has a child born to him, a son named Isaac, and he rejoices, the son, the promise. Yes, I've received the promise. And God's promised him that that son is going to be the first of many. You're going to, have to be a father to many nations. And Abraham goes, yes, my boy, I've got my boy. Then chapter 22 comes and God says, actually, I need to open your hands a little bit because you're settling with just happiness with what I've given you here when actually the promise is much greater. This promise is not just for you. It's for those far off as well. So he says, Abram, I, I, I want you to take your son, your only son, go up the mountain, I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice your boy to me. Can, can you imagine? That sounds such a barbaric, a barbaric ask, request from God. And we'll struggle in our own thought process. How do, we, how do we reconcile this? But I love to suggest that God wasn't after Abraham's son. He was after Abraham's joy. I'm not going to let you settle for anything less than the joy that I've got for you. So the narrative goes, Abraham responds in obedience, walks up the hill. He gets, for time's sake, this is just a paraphrased version. He gets his son Isaac and he puts him on an altar, ties him down there. And the Bible tells Isaac, says, Dad, what's going on? Where's, where's, the, where's, the, where's the ram? Where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And the father, nervously, probably not wanting to meet the gaze of his son, says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And there comes a moment where he pulls the flint, the knife out of his pocket, and he's about to 
kill his boy. And with tears in his eyes, he's about to plunge the knife into his son to sacrifice him to God. And as he's doing it, the voice resounds from God saying, Abraham, do not kill your son. He says, I've seen that you've obeyed me. He says, I've provided another sacrifice that's in the thicket, a ram, a lamb in the thicket. Go and find that and bring it out. Take your son off the altar. Put that lamb there and sacrifice it to me. And if you read, this is the first time we see this great theological concept called substitution appear in the Bible. Where one man goes free because another, another person, another lamb takes its place. One lamb for one man. The story goes on in the book of Exodus. We arrive at a, a place where the people of God in Israel have take, been taken on down to Egypt. And they've been there for 400 years under another mighty empire. Pharaoh and his mighty Egyptians, they're crushing the Israelite people under their thumb. And they're working, they're slaving and being abused. And they, for 400 years, crying out, how long, O God? How long? But God sends a deliverer named Moses who comes. And at first, he goes and attacks Pharaoh and the the gods with the lowered case G of Egypt with the mighty plagues, the ten plagues that flex God's muscles, showing them, actually, you think you're big? Let me show you my supremacy above you all. And God lays waste to the ideas of what God has real power. The Israelites watching this from a distance, trying to make sense of it. God is supreme and showing off in this moment. But then the story in chapter 12 zones in on them. And Moses says, God is now not just going to perform these mighty works out there. He's going to set you free. And they say, okay, how are we going to do this? He says, well, what's going to happen? The angel of the Lord is going to pass over this this evening. He's going to pass over every home in Goshen, in Egypt. He's going to pass over every single home. And he's going to slaughter and kill the firstborn sons of every single home. I can imagine the wide-eyed Israelites going, no, 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 not my kids. What's going on? No, no, no. They've seen the mighty hand of God. They don't need to be convinced that God is mighty and can do these things. No, 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 nervous. No, he says, don't worry. God's told me what we do to be spared. This is what God says, get the blood of a lamb, an unblemished lamb, kill it, and then take the blood of it and put it on the door frames of your home. And when the angel comes over those homes that will have the blood on them, it'll pass over. If I just put my head in in their space and I start going, if I'm there, I'm going, Moses, that sounds really simplistic. If we are basing the the safety of our kids on this, this narrative, are you sure there was nothing else God said? That's what I was saying. The blood, that's cool, we'll do that, but is there not another prayer we say? Do we do a ritual? Do we do a rain dance, the moonwalk? What, what are we doing? We'll do it, but to spare our kids, please give us, give us the instructions. And most like, that's all I got, guys. The blood. I, I've sent messages back to God, and he's just blue ticking me. The last thing he said was, do the blood thing on the doors. That's all I got, the blood. And I can imagine that night at home after home, do it in faith, and nervously holding the kid and, and going, no, please, 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 putting the blood on the door. And, and all of a sudden that night come, they gather the kids, leave, the, come from outside, come inside. And they shut the doors and they hunker down, holding their kids and holding them and, and, and gentle sobbing in the home saying, please, will this be enough? Please, will this be enough? And as the, the valley goes quiet and everyone goes to sleep that night in Egypt, the angel of the Lord starts to pass over Egyptian homes. And the red comes and doesn't see the blood on their homes, doesn't see the blood on their homes. And firstborn son after firstborn son is killed. You can imagine the screams going up. Ah! As Egyptian families come and find their kids slaughtered and killed. Ah! And those cries reach up the valley. And can you imagine the families as you're hearing the screams grow louder and louder coming up your street, one house, next house. And you're holding your kids going, please may this be enough. Please may this be enough. Please may this be enough. And as the angel of the Lord comes over your house and is there and you've put the blood, that's all you've done, just the blood, that's all you've done. And the angel comes over that home, rests on it, 
and then passes over, leaving you alone. It's the first time we see this doctrine called propitiation, where the wrath of God is turned aside by the sacrifice of a lamb. Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. Exodus 12, one lamb for one family. The book of Leviticus carries on and tells the story of the Israelites who get set free by, by God. They're on their journey to the promised land. They go through the wilderness. And God gives them instructions on how they are to relate to Him and be forgiven of their sins yearly. And, and for time's sake, it's this amazing structure called the tabernacle with a high priest. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, they're supposed to bring two lambs to them, two uh, unblemished lambs. And these lambs, the high priest will come with the first one. He'll lay his hands on the first one, and he'll impute the sins of the people for the past year on that lamb. And then he'll slaughter that lamb, take the blood of that lamb, go into the Holy of Holies, and offer that as a sacrifice to God for the sins of the people for the past year. That other lamb, they'll come to it, they'll lay his hands on that one, and he'll impute the sins of the people for the next year onto that lamb. And what they'll do then with that one is they'll send it on the other way out, and they'll drive that lamb out the other exit into the wilderness to die a natural death out there. And that's, that word goat is called the scapegoat. That's where we get our English phrase, the scapegoat, the one who takes the fall for another. The past sins and the future sins of the people are done on those lambs. You see the story is profound. We see Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. Exodus 12, one lamb for one family. In this story, we see in the book of Leviticus, one lamb for the nation's past sins, one lamb for the nation's first sins, one lamb for one lamb, one lamb for one family, one lamb for one nation. What's so profound is when we get to the book of John, we find a man named John the Baptist who looks out and sees Jesus coming towards him. And the first recorded statement from John the Baptist about Jesus is this statement. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One lamb. For one man, one lamb, for one family, one land, for one nation, Jesus, the lamb for the world. I'm going to call the band up at this time. But I want to tell you tonight, the blood of Jesus is on every page of the Bible. The blood of Jesus on every page, this book declares that Jesus' blood is enough for your life. It's enough for your situation. It's enough for your, your debauchery. It's enough for who you are. It's on every page of this book, but I want to say to you, is the blood of Jesus on every page of your life? You see, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter tells us, this theological statement says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the earth. He says this, the Lamb of God was slain before the creation of the earth. This is so huge that actually, yes, Peter tells us that Jesus did die a death. It, this is not some mythological thing or some, just a, like an example. No, Jesus died as, as God. He died before our very eyes. As Peter wrote in Acts 2, he died a literal death and then rose again. It literally happened in the physical. But Peter's saying that that death actually happened in the spiritual before creation. This is huge. Because actually Jesus is saying, God, he's saying, Peter's saying Jesus' death was not just in reaction like, oh, what do we do about their sin? No, it was always in God's heart to lift Jesus up as the only salvation for the world. It was always in his heart. And what's so profound for me is when we know that Jesus was slain before the creation of the world, the great news is was he was slain before we were born. He was slain before my addiction kicked in. His blood was enough before my abuse happened. His blood was enough before I responded in anger. His blood was enough for every horror of my past because His blood was shed before that. The great news of the gospel and the, of Jesus Christ is the book of Revelation finishes by declaring that at the very end, we will overcome 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony. How powerful is this? That the, the, the Jesus was slain before creation of the world, but also the very end will be culminated, what, what with? The blood of the Lamb. Here's the great news for you and I. That actually, all your, your future fears, your future concerns, what will I do about my kids? How will I fight for my spouse? What's going to happen when that happens? What happens when this diagnosis comes? What's going to happen on Thursday? What's going to happen with my family? All these statements that rile up inside of us and bring fear to us. The great news is the blood of the Lamb is in your future. And it says it's sufficient. It's enough. The blood of the Lamb before your past, the blood of the Lamb for your future. And here's the great news of it all is right now in this moment. Jesus walks here and says, I want to walk into your prison. I want to walk into your circumstance. I want to walk into the pages of your story that you have kept hidden, the secret shame, the secret lust, the secret pain, the guilt, the fears, the anxieties. I want to walk into that story, and I want to show you that my blood is enough. This evening, I'd love us to bow our heads as we bring this whole meeting to a close. Paul says, remember my chain." He's doing that not to point to his bravado. He's not doing that to guilt them. He's doing that to remind them that actually true freedom and true joy is not based on circumstance. It's based on our response to Jesus. Let me say it again. True freedom and true joy is not based on your circumstance. It's based on your response to Jesus. I'm going to pray for us now, and I want to ask us to make a decision for, to shift our hearts in this evening. Because under Nero, there was this huge propaganda statement that went around that actually in every town village, they had to declare loudly that Caesar is Lord. Caesar and Rome is our provision. Caesar and Rome is the capital. Caesar and Rome is where we find our power. Caesar and Rome is where we find our identity. But then a few groups of Christians who are living under the oppression of Rome, under the oppression of Nero, start to come up with a counter-statement, a statement of rebellion in the face of the Roman oppression. And they used to say, Jesus is Lord. That statement we find in the Bible is not from, made up from some pulpit preacher, not made up by some clergy member. It was made up in rebellion to Rome, the powers that were against us. And I want to tell you, we have the opportunity today to do just like they did and respond to the gospel and say, actually, our power is not in the economy. Our economy isn't Lord. My boss isn't Lord. My family isn't Lord. My sin isn't Lord. My fears aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we get to step aside and allow him to take the throne of our lives again because he is supreme. We just get to choose, will he be supreme in our story? Tonight, I want to ask us, as every eye closed, if you're here tonight and you, have, you know you've been living far away from the story. You've been living as the center of your story, trying to make it happen. I'm going to ask you tonight, if you're saying tonight, I need to trust the blood of Jesus for my life, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Would you stick up your hand so I can pray with you? Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anyone else? Fathers, these hands go up. We know that hands don't save us or hands don't, don't do anything. It's the faith in our hearts. These, as we lift our hands, then a small response to say, Jesus, I need you. I thank you, Father, in response to that, you pour out your spirit. You awaken souls from dead, dead things. You, you convict us of sin and God that we would turn and follow you, Jesus. I thank you that tonight these, these men and women are making you supreme. And they're saying, Jesus, you're sufficient.
I thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for that, Jesus, for these people. Why don't we stand to our feet together tonight? I love us as a people as we bring this series to a close to, to declare one time, one more time with our voices and song, just that chorus of Jesus, Jesus, your name, your name. But why don't we, before we do it, lift your hands to him tonight. Father, I thank you right now. My prayer at the beginning is the same at the end. Set us free from lesser pursuits, Jesus. Set us free from lesser pleasures. Would we see and savor you as the supreme, sovereign, sufficient God? There is none like you, Jesus. We're a people who have been marked by you, and we cannot go any other way. I thank you that tonight we would know that you're above it all, and you're with us in every single season. Right now, Father, I thank you that you're giving us a manual how to have joy in a prison. And I thank you, Father, right now you're setting the captives free from self-inflicted prisons of shame, of guilt, of sin, as we turn our eyes to you afresh.